0: So even even though your mother may think you're an absolute nutcase, we still uh, treat them with utmost respect like they're the mothers of Arahats and Buddhists, (laughs) fathers too, (laughs) even Jehovah's Witness mothers.
1: <laughs> However, they don't care much about the ashes and all the rest. And what do they
0: do? They cremate or bury? Or?
1: Well, they just bury, but they don't make much fuss about uh, uh, funerals and uh, you know, these kinds of things. Which is quite a contrast in the Catholic country. There yeah. is a, such a cloud, so, so you know what to do about it.
0: Remember when we went into the catacombs? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, can I ask you a question regarding the. Uh, <coughs> our relatives that have died uh, in accident. So, like, for instance, in Italy, uh, this is very much felt, particularly for a mother loses her son. But it's felt to, to such a great extent that she, she won't live in peace for the rest of her life. Like, for instance, uh, about um, a couple of weeks ago,
0: uh,
1: and the husband of this woman and, and the daughter came not on... on on our door and said, "If I could help them, because um, the the wife of this man had decided to die and was uh, was on her knees for the last 24 hours, and she had been her for three days, praying to Jesus to let her die, because her son uh, died of a heart attack. I think he died of over- overdose actually, he was 27. But anyway, for the last couple of years since the death of the son." She kept praying, you know, just trying to, to somehow feel kind of a uh, relationship still with the son, God, he was dead. And uh, so she had lost any sense of life for life. And she couldn't uh, go through a day without going to the cemetery and, and taking flowers. So all of her life had become, in fact, this kind of worship of, of the death of the son. It's very difficult just to kind of bring people out of it. But anyway, she she is off from this kind of determination to die, you know. And I was also able to go to their house and just kind of listen, basically, to, to her grief and so on. But uh, <coughs> it has become such a knock in her consciousness that there is no other reason to live than, you know, to worship, almost worship, you know, the sun. And, of course, there is the makeup belief that, uh, in fact, God wanted him. So she can find some peace of mind with that although it's very kind of a sorrowful event. But like that, I have seen many, many uh, women, in fact, uh, for the rest of their life, one of the customs is when your husband dies, you know, you wear black for the rest of your life. So you could even be, in kind of 19 or 20 in these villages, you know, particularly in the south, and they are widows and kind of like, you know, waiting for their own death in a sense.
0: How does the Catholic Church treat it? Well, what is their position? Do they encourage that? Pardon? Do they encourage that?
1: Well, they do to a certain extent because they have prayers for the departed and then they have uh, a year, uh, one day a year. That is, I think it's fourth on the 3rd third, third or 4th of November, is, in fact, dedicated to the departed. I mean, it's it's seen as a very noble or honorable thing to do, you know, just But, of course, it becomes obsessive in the mind of people, you know. They attach to that. And then make it also uh, something so (coughs) personal, whereby they compare themselves to others, you know. Because if you go to the century every day, you know who goes and who doesn't who takes flowers every day, who does not take flowers every day, who pays for the price, you know, once a week, or a couple of times a week, and who doesn't and so It becomes almost a competition of who is, you know, who is better. This <laughs> you know,
0: Did she listen to you at all? Did, was, was there any possible opening? No.
1: Well, in fact, there was a big opening because there were, I mean, the uh, husband and this daughter, you know, came knocked on a Buddhist monastery. They had heard about me, but they came as a last remedy, you know, last <laughs> <laughs> resort. <A> resort. <laughs> you know, they have tried everything else, you know, just let <laughs> us go to the Buddhist. <laughs> <laughs> get Let's get her out of this state. And in fact, they they claim to the miracle, because uh, I mean they. We said we will pray, we do ch- pray to chant. We had already chanted for for the son uh, about three months before, but I had never seen the actual parents. So we did some chanting, and then uh, I asked several questions, and uh, so when they told me she was uh, praying to Jesus for the last 24 hours on her knees. On the bed of the sun, bed, bed, bed sun. Um, I said, Well, um, we'll ch- ch- chant for them and I can come to your house because they wanted me to go and talk to, to them. I said, But uh, the most appropriate thing to do you know, when a comes to the house is to offer, to, uh, to give uh, uh, offerings, you know. And so they said, yes, please come to our house and we should. Uh, you know, uh, I should tell my my <coughs> wife that uh, you will be coming and she can make offer to you. So in fact, soon after the visit, uh, the daughter was able to talk through the night with the mother and she came out of the state. And uh, meanwhile, I had sent her a big uh, picture that I just happened to have in the cover of. Jesus, <laughs> <Very nice one. laughs> For a couple of years, I was thinking, what should I do with this? <laughs> I didn't recover. Yeah, so. A picture from the Holy Shroud, so I sent it to her, and said, I'll come the following day. So she was waiting the following day, and... Uh, She gave plenty of offerings, you know, and she took a great uh, joy in doing that. And also through the night she had opened the Bible and said, uh, I mean, uh, she believed that if she opened the Bible, she would find an answer to her prayers. So, In in this little verse was said that uh, uh, there was no reason to despair because the angels of God would have supported her. In, in her troubles, you know, so she should work on. So I talked to her about her responsibility, but uh, towards the rest of the family, so it wasn't right for her just to clutch onto, grasp onto the grief and and ignore you know, the relationship with her husband or, or the daughter. So she understood that that was so the way to come out later. <coughs>
0: Very good, Venerable. <laughs> <laughs> he <laughs> did all the right things.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: but it's very strong, in, in fact, in the mind of people, this, this kind of duty to grieve. You know, as I said, well, in you some know. of those uh, churches, uh,
0: they're so morbid, aren't they? Mm. So, with all these grieving figures... All the, every, you know, in Catholic churches in Italy and Spain, they're all this filled with grief. they're depressing.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> you remember when we went, we went to see that church in Rome, St. Mary's Church, yes, with, uh, with the big uh, knife in her heart. Yes. Well, in instead they have a procession where they carried a statue of the Mary dressed in black, grieving with this knife. You know, just kind of
2: stuck in there. And that's
0: the church where they crawl up the stairs on their knees. Isn't yes. <coughs> well The practice of you have to crawl up this long flight of stairs on your knees. <clears throat> I thought the Italians were supposed to be sunny, kind of wine drinking types.
1: <laughs> the men <mainland>. oh.
2: are. <laughs>
1: there is a neighbor that is always insisting to to give me some wine. He you know. almost. Uh, Convinced do drunk. He literally had to run off the house. He had to leave. He was embarrassed. Well,
0: here in this country, they don't give you any chance to grieve. There's the opposite. In Britain, they, don't, they almost kind of forbid grief. It's a stiff upper lip, kind of get get them in, burn them up, get rid of the stuff, and then don't even think about it. <laughs> is a, one is indulgence and one is suppression at two extremes but there's a, there's a kind of pleasure in, in sadness I find it in, in pathos I mean, and one can indulge in it. Mm-hmm. You know, it gives such a meaning to your life. Because ordinary life can be pretty drab. Mm-hmm. You know, husband and daughter and work and dishes and food and and the same old things. But then in your, when you're kneeling at a grave or crying in front of a statue or crawling on your knees up in the, sta- the stairs, staircase of a church or something, you you, you know... you there's a lot more kind of importance, seeming importance to it all. It could be quite an indulgent thing. So, uh, I think, you know, that people can easily think that that's the right thing to do, and also there's a certain amount of, it makes your life much more, gives it some kind of focus, because, my, because I think most people's lives is pretty boring and dreary. <clears throat> so something like that, your son dies, or you can really indulge in you know the the grief and the sadness that come from that. Where at a level that's a good thing to do to grieve. but then, it be, but then to know the difference between what is really grief and what is indulging in grief. feeling sorry for yourself and, and wallowing in these kind of emotions. Because that, that, there's a certain, I mean, its it looks like they're miserable, but actually I think they're quite enjoying it. I mean, I found, I found, I used to try doing that. I remember one time in, uh, years ago, went to, in San Francisco, went to this uh, shrine I was feeling sorry for myself. In one of these states of self-pity, so I went the Great Cathedral in San Francisco. Episcopal Cathedral has this kind of shrine outside it, little kind of chapel that you open all the time, 24 hours a day. So I went in there. This middle of the night, and uh, I went through the most incredible emotion, you know, that I could contrive, <laughs> <laughs> and gave up. I had. I had a wristwatch I had a, a jade ring and anything about of money I gave it all put it all in this in this um, donations box I, mean, I thought I'd give up everything I I all the money I had and uh, the, the watch the ring all of anything that I had of value in value I put in this <coughs> donations box and I sat there for hours you know in this state of, kind of a trance like state of of uh, of uh, self pity really and uh, and it was quite quite uh i quite enjoyed it <laughs> 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 But I was hoping some transforming experience would happen, but nothing did, you know. Yet, you know, please, you know, strike me with a thunderbolt or do something. Uh, At the end, that's why I got kind of weary of it all and disappointed, got up and left. Then I wished I could get my watch and ring back. <laughs> I didn't have any money to, to pay for the tram to get back home. Oh. <laughs>
2: Yes. <laughs>
0: and I think in, in Catholic countries also where the women are, that's a role for them, isn't it? That's very much what they're supposed to do. <clears throat> so they get praised for it in a way. They, they're supported I was reading in this article in Brindaban in India where I think uh, Lord Krishna lived. They have the, this, this foundation set up for widows. Because in India there's a lot of widows that that nobody wants. You know, the women that oftentimes... Uh, because a widow can't remarry in India, in in Hindu system. And and like some of them, you know, they get married when they're about sixteen, fourteen, fifteen years old and their husbands die even before they're twenty. And and of course they're just a liability to the family. They can't, you know, they if the family's not very well off, they've got to support this widow. Sometimes they just throw them out of the house and they and so these widows they set up this foundation in Brindaman for these widows. And uh it's pretty pathetic. The article in Time Magazine about it, and they uh, they sit and they they go to this place hall every day and they chant Hare Krishna, make these devotions and chant Hare Krishna, and they but they get they get a pittance, you know, of enough to like a, they're given a couple of saris a year, but they hardly get enough to eat, and they don't have any way of making a living, so they're just living on a, you know on the edge of starvation and poverty. And uh, and their lives, they just go to this this ugly hall every day, and they're supposed to be chanting and praying all the time. Uh, really sad when you think of a misery of people.
3: For the comparison of uh, Bangkok, Thailand, where they have some of those elaborate death ceremonies. Rich people or famous people, and they go on for like months. And the people go every day to the monastery to sit the months chanting. Costs them thousands and thousands of baht for a funeral, uh, the actual ceremony ceremony before the, the funeral takes place. Quite amazing. Right, because that's people feel it. mean.
0: Now in uh, in uh, when we were in uh, United States, remember Evelyn Fullerman was was uh, telling about this. Uh, there's, there's a place in the United States with a catalog where you can have mail order kind of everything from from little kind of 90s in, in in gowns that you put on corpses, uh, different jewelry and uh, different linings for the coffin, different qualities of coffins, and a whole you know, thick uh, catalogue of accessories for funerals that uh, display, uh, preying on this uh, people's you know, death, you know, with somebody dying, oftentimes you can make them, intimidate them, thinking that they're if they buy a cheap coffin, that they're not uh, they're not paying respect to the person that died, so these uh, funeral parlours have you know intimidate you into buying very expensive like mahogany coffins and with with brass fittings and satin linings and and uh, all kinds of different dresses you can put on the corpse and whole wide selection of jewelry earrings necklaces bracelets cosmetics and uh, they make a fortune People, it's easy to intimidate people over death.
3: They've had this fashion for a while now that uh, you can buy your coffin before you die, have it home with you, and uh, every once in a while you can sort of get in it and try it out, and tie it bits, and it's all sort of there, ready, ready and waiting for that special moment. So,
0: That would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> also, I, I do find though, that
4: Time goes by, you may get over the loss of a husband or other loved ones. But with the loss of a child, and I can't speak for fathers, I can only speak for, for mothers, <laughs> but, um, and from my own personal experience, that even though grief fades, it comes back at the most unexpected times for years. And I've seen Mothers who are 70 years old, um, who lost a child 50 years ago and suddenly the grief is there again.
0: But that's just... Uh, that's a natural... That's thing. not a no, it's self-pity... No, it's a natural... Natural.
4: Thing, but, but the... I guess what I'm trying to point out is that when you lose a husband or a, a parent, um, the grieving time um, is not as long as it is when you lose a child. And the effects of losing a child um, tends to be devastating for families, too. At least. I don't know about any those, but it tends to be devastating for families. As a Yes. It's not okay. supposed to be that way. <laughs> they're oh. supposed to outlive us. And, and, and as mothers, um, I know I felt that it's like I, you want to take away the pain uh, for your children and, and their suffering, and you're used to kind of being able to kiss it and make it go away when they're little.
0: I think what I see with mothers is a great grief that mothers have even when, they, when their children don't die, is seeing their children grow up <laughs> <laughs> and uh, go and start doing things you know are really horrible and mm-hmm. nothing you can do, you just have, <clears throat> have to let them... <laughs> That's, uh, you know, not being a woman, but one can consider, you know, giving birth and that is such you know, a miraculous process. And the, the whole pregnancy and, and that, it must be an incredible bond developed. <laughs> <coughs> that it's bond. Like animals
2: breathing.
4: Yeah.
0: Like abortion, is that, how do how do women, have you seen, you know, do women relate to, uh, the, do they have grief about abortion, or, because it seems to be quite acceptable now to have abortion. <clears throat> um, I, I really can't say, I, I
4: don't know, I, I do know that a lot of women do, but I don't, it really seems to vary um, depending on what stage of the pregnancy and how old they are. I think that all women would suffer something, whether it's demonstrated or not. I think the sad thing is that um, there isn't always counseling that goes with it and that can be I think terrible if they don't get the counseling before or even afterwards. It was often the effect that um, delayed. And um, I remember one woman. She had had an abortion and hadn't told She then married and, um, and um, hadn't told her husband that she had the abortion. And unfortunately, she actually had a stillbirth with her child. And because she hadn't really had a counseling, she um, took it as, um, as uh, that she was being punished having had the abortion and having And even at that point, she wasn't able to share it with her husband. So she was kind of grieving secretly as well because of that. You know, it, was really, it was very difficult to look after her because um, she she was bound in the situation where she had a 12-husband. So it can be pretty devastating sometimes.
0: That was very hard. I think I, I went to, uh, that
4: part was very hard for me.
0: Here we've seen them with the two uh, retarded children, um, and uh, husband's New Zealander, and both her son and daughter. You know, the daughter's are 28 or 29, and the son's about 24. And she's had, and they had birth injuries, both of them, which made them mentally undeveloped. But what I'm amazed with her is how I've never seen a more kind of giving and devoted mother. I mean, she really loves them. She's not just putting it on. She's not just being dutiful. But she's, I mean, I've known her for a long time. And, and uh, the patience. and uh, the, uh, She's not, she's, you know, most women, I mean, most people, I think, would be ashamed of it. Uh, and would try to kind of put them away and keep them out of the way. But she's not, she brings them out. <laughs> <laughs> she, she She talks about them with great love and affection and, and, uh, her husband also seems very committed to taking care of them. And I think in her view, as a Buddhist, a Thai Buddhist, I think she sees it very much as her karma, and that her her karma is to take care of it. She's given birth and the, and this is a karma, so she's really, you know, it's a, it's a kind of, it's, it's not, I don't detect any self-pity in her at all. Uh, she does say sometimes that she's, she really wants to practice, so she won't be reborn again because she's had enough in life. But it's it's thoroughly understandable, you know. But it's not it's not bitter. She never. I've never heard it. i never heard her say it in a bitter way. It's more of a matter of fact way. Found it very, you know, and, and of course one really enjoys when they come because. And she's a very nice person in, her, in herself. And then her, even Serena and Jamie are quite, quite <laughs> nice in their own right. But I was thinking, what a, you know, for a woman to, to give birth to two retarded children, and uh, that would be such a, a disappointment.
4: My experience is that they usually become very protective. And to focus on the children and just in observing, I don't see that with, I think Mrs. Parker Mm -hmm. as well. She's, um, that's the one observation. She's not protecting them either. And I've been quite inspired. (laughs) <laughs> yeah,
0: with, just the way she appears to be, with her, her children, yeah. It's really amazing. One time, in New Zealand, uh, they had this, uh, in, uh, in uh, Wellington, they had this big donor for me, uh, this was before the monastery, we, we built the monastery in here, you know, they had this kind of international cultural centre in, in uh, Wellington big room, and I went there, I think Tanaro, you were there, or, or no, <coughs> I no, it was, uh, there was, 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 was Cambodian monk was there, anyway, we, there were all these people, you know, like most of them Asian, Thai, Cambodian, Lao, Sri Lankan people, and he was sitting with our arms and they had all this food on these tables across the room and uh, this, you know how asian people provide food and something uh, just you know covered in food most delicious looking things and mrs parker was busy kind of organizing things and she brought her daughter serena you see and so she when she was busy and involved and suddenly she looked over and there was serena at these tables just gobbling the food <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: and and Mrs Parker goes Serena, <laughs> so Serena stops, you know. But then Serena has this really incredible look on her face, like a cat that swallowed the canary. <laughs> she got away with it, you know. Got away with quite a bit before she found out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if he wasn't frightened. Obviously, you know, Mrs. Parker isn't. Doesn't uh, you know? Isn't uh, she's quite firm, but she's not. Uh, they don't seem like they've ever been beaten or anything <coughs> like that. She can be quite, you know, firm and don't oh, you do that, and that kind of thing. But it's it's not coming from uh, from aversion. <laughs>
1: <laughs> she actually confessed to use the belt with Jamie, which it is it's, it's a, big, a big, big, big man. Now, so yeah. No, is, she does it with kindness anyway. I
4: was happy to feel the period of hope. You
0: to feel sorry for her. No. No, there's no... Uh, no, uh, no, nothing like that. No, in, in, intimation that she expects him to do sort. Mm. Jamie
4: always looks so pleased when the monks come through
2: the line. If they look at him and the beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: Indira. With, with Indra. Right. She's very patient, and especially in the case of Indra, that she's quite a bad case. And it's been very difficult for, for the mother.
0: Well, she was deserted by her husband. So she's had to rave Indra all on her own.
4: The yeah. Did he die? She loved her very much mm. they were very much in love. life, but she died about 37, very I, I think it's even more difficult because she wasn't born very damaged. She's a normal lady. And um, she got um, serious illness and the husband was with the child and he, he couldn't get out of the hospital because there was some kind of flood and there was this delay and during the delay she developed a brain damage. <coughs> so, you know, really much to watch it, actually, you know, the realisation, you have all the blood with that nowadays, so it it's just kind of circumstances that led to
0: well, I think that like the reflections on karma, it's, it somehow makes it those things bearable. Because if you think it's your karma, there's some kind of resignation. But when when you think, why me? What have I done? God, why did you do this to me? Out kind of me. It just tends towards this sense of I've been. This should never happen. It's not right. Where, when you think of karma, you you put it in a perspective of things like this do happen, and it's my karma. And so I accept this karma. There is more grace and and a kind of relief in accepting it than in thinking why why did this have to happen to me. And uh, sometimes you hear people say, Why, how could this happen to me? You know, they say, Well, it happens to other people, why not you? <laughs> Maybe. Why should it not happen to me? It can
4: really be an opportunity for a great personal
0: growth. Right. Those things can oftentimes they're very, they're very uh, things that awaken us. It's a tragedy. We had, you know, like with the people, with the cancer patients we've had here, where they turned it into a you know, that have died here uh, in the, the monastery with cancer they've all kind of turned what is an unfortunate thing into a into a very good thing. So that they're, you know, they, they uh, one, you know, and then being involved in it yourself, like you, you being in the hospice, you know, know that, that death isn't depressing or bad. But most people think it is. Mm-hmm. And then then there was a woman in the Buddhist society that was dying of cancer, and uh, she didn't want to see anybody. And the Venerable Admiral went to see her. She didn't, wouldn't speak to him. she didn't want to know she didn't want to to uh, discuss it or hear anything. She just uh, was angry and she wasn't open to, to anything different you know where she was still not only a tensor she was totally miserable with it <laughs> she was you know she was really you know really suffering. Where the others had the cancer, but they didn't create the suffering around it. They had all the discomfort and the uh, unpleasantness of a disease, but they didn't. But they were getting outside. They they could. They could accept it, and uh, they didn't resent it or blame anyone. And so mentally, they were open and became more aware, more sensitive through that, through Mm -hmm. having that. And so then one sees that they turn what is considered misfortune into good fortune. Well, the other woman just compounded misery. I don't know how she died. I mean, she was just, uh, you know, a woman that I don't want to know and I don't want, you know, it's just horrible what's happening to me and I don't want to know anything. (laughs) Dope me up, block me up, you know. (laughs) (coughs) (coughs) Annihilate <laughs> me. <coughs> 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 so I think in 1230. Mm-hmm. <coughs> it got so bad that I just couldn't uh, you know and my foot was saying my right foot was saying so tomato look at me right foot I didn't care less about. <laughs> my right foot would start don't. is saying tomato look at me get out of here <laughs> anything more boring in the world is my right foot I don't want to like just wish it would shut up <laughs> because I have quite a I have very nice thoughts I have I like ethereal Idealism and things like this. It's beautiful, some of the things that go on in my head. <laughs> <laughs> uh, foot, you know, it's a, it's the lowest part of your body, and it's the most uninteresting part.
1: At least I thought so. And finally,
0: I got the point. It became such an ongoing, it, insisting in so, insistence and, and unrelenting relentlessly pounding like the Americans are doing the day. relentlessly pounding with my foot kept relentlessly pounding my mind so finally I I uh, had to pay attention and I start bringing attention to to the to that uh, boring Thing, the right foot. I've always looked at then this right foot as a kind of uh, heavenly messenger for me. I've never, I've never, uh, I've always uh, had uh, even appreciation, gratitude for it, because it it uh, was a relatively, you know, even though it looked, doesn't look so good, it's really quite quite all right. There's no pain in it, and it. It just doesn't look very nice, but it uh, it doesn't really cause any problems to me in life. But it did make me bring. It did teach me an important lesson. Then in in my heart, I kept thinking, like, and I found, you know, I was I learned how to keep all the time, and uh, I started getting a reputation in tiling, um Venerable uh, Pratsumato is, uh, you know, when I'd go anywhere, they'd say, Would you give a talk? And so I'd, I'd become somebody important I'd, in a very short time, you know. I'd, you know, I didn't deserve <laughs> that <nothing. laughs> It But it's just a unique situation of being a furang in, in Thailand at a time when there weren't very many prop frangs. And so there I was, in, in, you know, quite made a lot of became an important mark very quickly. Great, I loved it. (laughs) (laughs) Always wanted to be famous. (laughs) Being a Leo, you'd love high seats and things like this. Thrones. You just take to him like like a duck to water. (laughs) not a problem. Being that it wasn't even conceit, it's just a kind of comic inheritance, I think. Is that, is that I certainly didn't feel that I'm deserving of all this, but I've never felt, you know, I've never felt uh, particularly uh, embarrassed by it, either. You know, some people feel terribly embarrassed by all the attention they get, or having to sit on a high seat. Remember Ajahn Sanvedito, and Sitting on the tamat, and you know, he always looked so to- totally embarrassed sitting on that high seat. I never felt embarrassed sitting on the high. <laughs> so then I got all my wishes fulfilled, except I began to realize that that uh, I, I had I had kind of developed all this external stuff. And I had a measure of tranquility, but I was something incomplete in me. My heart had not developed. And uh, I had become, uh, I'd become a good performer. And I'd become a good bhikkhu and a good performer. So then, then, uh, but there was still a sense of inner anguish and fear. There was a the sense of of, of of being exposed or of or of being of of losing all this. You know, or one tended to feel jealous of others who tended to find that be getting more attention than you. Or one tended to feel threatened in situations where, where you thought you might lose it or things were going wrong. Or I I find out I get very uh, uh very upset and offended and hurt or angry at unfair criticisms or blame or or uh, I feel very I should feel very hurt when people criticize me, especially if it was unfair. So then these this was obviously a sign to me, my heart would say, look at me too, because I already come to terms with the body with the sila, with the uh, with the teachings, the, I, I have great love for the, the teachings of the Buddha. So then, in in uh, over the years, and uh, this just using this this uh, mindfulness and openness to to the feeling of life, to one to the fears that one is experiencing, or the Anxieties or the, or the, uh, anger and, and, and uh, uh, anxiety and, the uh, greed. Like with lust. When, when you're living a celibate life, you think you're, you're kind of, you know, you're trying to, you, you don't want to feel uh, sexual desires. So you, you can just kind of, uh, the monastic life, it can be a very suppressive way of dealing with sexual desire. So you you can just, you know, kind of fight against it. But then, if you fight, if you just suppress sexual desire, your heart doesn't develop. You need sexual desires. You need that energy for opening your heart. So if you're just trying to hold it down, and I don't feel any, I don't have any like these dirty thoughts or these desires, or a good monk doesn't doesn't have such such thoughts, and and uh, just trying to. Or we in the Thailand, we used to always be thinking women are uh, they're just filled with with the uh, feces. <laughs> is a kind of way of dealing with this as super-practice, where you, you're just trying to see women always in the most awful terms, because in that way it, it does kind of, doesn't make them attractive anymore. But by doing that, you know, also, it's a kind of lie, because even though that, in one way, that's true, there's that aspect, but that's not that's not the, that's not the total story, is it? <laughs> <laughs> and so you can think that just by by, by thinking that all the time, then it's going to. But it doesn't. It doesn't work. After a while, uh, even even if you think they're just filled with excrement, sexual desire still. Comes. <laughs> so while it doesn't it doesn't hold, because it's 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 based on just the, the mind, the, the intellect. So that one one begins to uh, say, accept this force, this drive, this energy, and direct it more, use it more, rather than just suppress it. One uh, uh, with anger and uh, the suppress anger and, and all that. One begins to to just. Be more willing to admit it, and to to bear it, <coughs> and to let go of it, not suppress it. With uh, with, and I've given you reflections on doubt and uncertainty, and how to deal with these hindrances, so that the the uh, the actual body itself is being is, is, its energies are going are filling it up. It's like you. are like uh, something you you you're allowing the whole thing to be energized with your mind otherwise you end up with just holding everything down like if you're suppressing sexual desires then you, you get all bound up in your in your guts you just you're just holding it in and you and and that uh, below the diaphragm and you, you just get incredibly tense and uh, and uh, Miserable in your, in your, in your, uh, abdomen. You know, it takes a lot of effort to just hold it, to keep it, keep it from, you know, going into lustful, lustful, uh, actions. But when you, when you begin to examine the body more, then you realize you have the ability to, to direct energy. And this is where you, instead of just trying to hold it down with the, your with your mind, you're you're allowing that energy to rise up into your heart, because it's it's like the solar, the diaphragm, the where it can actually begin to draw it inward, draw it upward, rather than say releasing it through uh, orgasm or just suppressing it through willful uh, fear. And repen- aversion or rejection. Then the heart, the ideals, all you have in your head, all the all the beautiful signs, road signs with all the lovely superlatives and and ethereal suggestions, instead of just trying to hang on to these signs in your head, which which you know makes you insensitive. What is more insensitive than an idealist? Have you met you met people with ideas? ideals and they're just so terribly insensitive. Because you, you're all up here, you don't your your brain doesn't feel anything. You can talk about love, but not but it's it's all it's all just uh, rubbish because you you don't feel it. You don't. You don't love anyone, you just you just talk in sentimental terms about it. Because it it's a nice idea, but it makes you insensitive. Just attachment to the view of love and goodness makes you insensitive. So that's why one, one tends to distrust people that are always talking about these high-minded things. Because some of the most Insensitive, uh, unfeeling people have been people that I've met who who live in this intellectual realm and uh, and have a good line. But when it comes to the real thing, to actual uh, life itself, are, have no, no awareness, no understanding, no sensitivity to the things around them. It's like one of the problems with Western civilizations and why we why we destroyed our environment. Why, how could we pollute our planet the way we have because if we because we have ideas about it that's why even environmentalists and ecologists I don't trust very much <laughs> they they're probably the same operating from the same uh, ignorant position of how the environment should be according to an ideal rather than... And really opening the heart their own heart to feel life to be willing to to feel this this uh, this living breathing thing we're involved in this this planetary system this body itself that the, the the heavens and the earth the whole thing the human the human heart is that is' it, always the, the the marriage the ideal of the Perfection of the heart is the marriage of the, the perfect marriage of the male-female, or the, 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 the heavens and the earth. The, these are the symbols for that freedom of the heart. So even if you're, even if you can't, even if, if it, your heart absolutely doesn't feel anything, to allow it to be that way, to, to start from the way it is rather than trying to think you should feel something with your heart. Or if you do, then note that there's this, these kind of tyrannical forces telling you what you should be doing. And trust more in just uh, be willing to be patient and be a little more sensitive. Two seconds more sensitive. Not intimidation. Thing you should be sensitive to everything, and you should develop your heart. And then you thought, I don't I I don't have a heart. And I've got to develop it. It's all week. Be I've been trying to get my bloody heart going. <laughs> <laughs> We, we you know you can get quite emotional about the heart and love and perfect marriage. These are the power, these are emotive words, sentiments, and so it's not in just kind of attaching to those ideas, but but in in the in the patient uh, trust and willingness to to bear with maybe a feeling of of uh, non-feeling, or doubt, or inadequacy, or blankness, Just start from where you are, rather than thinking that you should, there's something you should be feeling. When I first started in it, I didn't feel anything. I tried to I said, I read these books about the opening of the heart. I'd sit there and I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Just couldn't feel much of anything. I found it boring. Found my right foot more interesting than my heart. (laughs) (coughs) At least you could kind of twinkle your toes and sweep your toes and things like that in your right foot, but not with your heart when it doesn't feel anything. So then I realized it wasn't. It wasn't on the same level. It wasn't. Uh, Kind of trying to that it should be feeling anything, but it's an attitude where you're you're coming from this more, where the the, you're allowing yourself to feel, allowing sensitivity to operate in this moment. It's not that you're you're feeling something uh, in any in any way, but there is there is the the uh, relinquishment of all the ideas of yourself and what you should be in order to be here. And this was a w- one thing I I remember having a, a very clear insight in, uh, in Wapapho years ago, where <clears throat> where I was uh, passing out, we had to pass out food, and, uh, and I never liked doing it, you see, so I'd always kind of wait for it, other people to do it, and then finally, they, they, as I became more senior in the monastery, then I was expected to do it every day. And I found it troublesome because, you know, they te- you have all these monks, and you and you'd have to ladle out this food so that each monk would get a approximately the same amount. You know, so I found this very upsetting to me because I was so afraid that I wouldn't have enough at the end. You know, that by the time I got down to the end of the line there would all there wouldn't be enough for the monks at the end of the line i so I'm kind of in this state of trying kind of you know be very concerned sometimes you'd you'd end up with you know a pot you know still half full at the end of the line you'd been so stingy to all the other months that if the one at the end of the line had got most of it or you'd you'd be generous to the senior month at the beginning. And by the time you got down to the end, uh, there the, would be just the drinks for the Junior monks and the Anagarikas. Sometimes you'd imagine them looking at you with hatred and aversion. So such You wouldn't look at them, afraid to look at them. So this was a real ordeal. Uh, I used to find, you know, every morning when I had to get up and do this, a uh, sense of dread and, and feeling the, uh, feeling ill at ease. Yeah. And then one one morning, I just happened to decide to rather than look at, the, the, think, worry about it, or make anything problem about it. I decided to just try to stay concentrated with my heart more. Just look inward while doing it. You know, doing the best I could on the external. But I I brought my attention here, in right here, to my where my physical heart is. And I started passing out this food, and and I uh, found um, yeah, quite peaceful because somehow the self had been by doing that there was no self in it because the self had, had to come come from the thoughts and the, the the head position. When when I was with my <clears> heart, then things seemed to go all right, and you weren't always uh, you know totally successful in every in you know, all distribution, but it was everybody had enough to eat no, why make a problem about it? <laughs> there's always enough to eat for everyone so so then uh, and then by bringing by remembering my, to bring attention to be more here than up here I begin to find a lot more kind of, sense of being at peace and more mind Because what gun does it do? If you, you know, you're passing out this food and you're worried, you tend to be, lose all mindfulness. You're, you're not sensitive. You just say Oh not enough for the ones at the end of the line and oh, yes, they'll hate me, the Anagarikas will be really upset <laughs> when you totally you become totally heedless. Miserable. well that's why when religion you talk about trust in the heart or faith it comes from here and it's not not uh, even even physically you have this body this body is is a is a uh, metaphor isn't it it's a it's a symbol it's it has a symbolic nature our own human body when you have Sila samadhi punya you're talking about the body in your Talking about Buddha Dhammasangani, you're, you're talking about now, and this is the way it is now. You're not thinking in terms of Buddhas as being kind of energies in outer space or abstractions, ideals of the mind. You're, you're bringing you're bringing this, this uh, these symbols, these these road signs, and rather than just collecting them and hanging on to them and ordering them and filing them away, you're 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 developing heart with it, and that takes—that's what meditation is for. It's not to get your jhanas and get your samadhi and and to uh, become one, someone who can sit still or do this or do that. Because if, if you're practicing <coughs> for any selfish reason for, from the ego, then then you'll end up maybe with you know with a good posture but no heart. Is still is still a miserable wretch, so like that's where when we listen we, we, we listen to what what what's happening to you you know like like we learn, it, it, rather than wait for somebody to tell you or just just keep going in the in the momentum of your old habits until you you just crack up <clears throat> You know, this, this mindfulness is, is being receptive and open to, to your own individual experience of life. Like if your right foot is giving you a lot of trouble, maybe it's trying to say, you know, pay attention to me. Like my right foot was was a, was a devadutta, a messenger, sent. Say, pay attention to me. The feeling of, of suffering, of, of being, you know, being a, a, you know, quote important person, important bhikkhu, and yet the, the feeling of, of, of anxiety and, and worry and, and uh, dread and all that was. was that look at my heart was saying, look at me. i was doing quite well on, on the exterior side. I could put on a good show, <laughs> but but then, in spite of that, the heart was saying, you know, this is, you know, I'm I'm totally neglected. When you have doubts like in, uh, about this life, and, and oh, I've been I've been practicing, but I still. Don't feel I've gotten anything, and doubt or disillusionment. Yeah, these are important signs. I eh? look at your heart. Your heart saying, "Remember me." So, that, rather than thinking that, that it's the you know the meditation or the tradition that's wrong, or that there's something wrong with you as a person. <coughs> Still this this very important lesson and this lesson is is uh, is the most difficult it's easy to to kind of fit into the, the robe and learn to to go through the motions, put on a good act one can that's not terribly difficult for most of us some people have more problems with it than others but generally we we can, we we quite we can conform to it quite easily and and look good, and and we can intellectually be quite good, you know, get all the words right and understand all the concepts and sound intelligent, sound like we really know what we're talking about. That's not terribly difficult either, but what. What is the, the big, the, the, the ultimate release is the liberation, the unshakability of the heart. Not, unshakability doesn't mean kind of uh, rigidity. It means balance. It means uh, liberation, flexibility.